In case you don't know me, my name is Phil Bowen. I am one of the preachers and teachers here at Cross Point Church. Been uh, attending here for quite some time, and I'm thankful to be a part of this church. Um, I'm glad you're here today. Uh, you get to experience our first sermon in a new series called Side by Side. Side by Side. Side. And we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you'll want to open them to Philippians at this time. You know, when you open up your Bible, what you see are words and sentences and paragraphs. But I want you to know that behind all that, there are real flesh and blood people. There was a real group of people that existed behind this book, and they existed at a point in time in history. So what I want to do is, I want to start by personalizing this book for you and giving you some background about those particular people. Um, first of all, it, you know, I love looking at maps. I don't know why, but whenever I'm studying something, especially in the Bible, I want to know where it was, and I want to visualize that locale on a map, so I want to get that geographical connection. Is anybody else like that, or is it, is it just me? So there's, there's some of you like that. So let me give you a perspective on Philippians. So, so if you were standing in Jerusalem and facing north, okay, the city of Philippi would have been right around here. So northwest, northwest. And if you were to travel by land to get there, it would be about 1,450 miles. If you were to travel by sea, or maybe we could say as straight as the crow flies, it would be about 930 miles. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a Roman city, and it is in the country of Greece. That's where it is. So if you can just imagine Greece, Greece is on the Balkan Peninsula. And if you kind of move around into the Panhandle area, first you would come to the church at Thessalonica. And then you would move past that church and ultimately come to this church in Philippi. Philippi was named after Philip II, who happened to be the father of Alexander the Great. And it was named that around 350 B.C. So that is the city that we're talking about, the city that's behind this church. So Philippians are really just people from Philippi, right? You probably already knew that. They're kind of like uh, Alabamians or Wisconsinites. Philippians are people from Philippi. Now, let me give you a little more background and tell you why there's a church there in the first place. So, first of all, you know, just, just develop this picture in your mind and realize that, that this is like the beginning stages of the gospel being, being taken into a world that has never experienced the gospel. And we know that the gospel is 
It's the light of the world, right? I mean, the story and the message about Jesus and His salvation, that is the light of the world. That is the message that gives hope to the world. Without that message, there is no hope. Everybody perishes, except for those who trust in and believe Jesus. Everybody else perishes. Okay, so just imagine looking down on Philippi prior to a church being there, and, and let's say um, there's like a satellite, a spiritual satellite called Angel Earth, okay? Not Google Earth, but Angel Earth. It's a spiritual satellite. And, and that satellite can see into the spirit realm, and it looks down over this region of Greece. All it sees is darkness. Absolute darkness. There is no light. Because the gospel hasn't been there. The message of Jesus has not been there and been proclaimed. So that's, that's what we're talking about, right? There, there's nothing, no life there. And then there's this guy, Paul. You know, he's been set apart by God, right? On the road to Damascus, God knocks him off his horse and turns his life around and, and, and infuses the gospel into his soul and says, take it to the world. And so Paul's already been on one missionary journey, and now he's getting ready to go on another missionary journey at the end of, at the end of Acts 15, and he's taking Silas with him this time. And so he, he leaves, and they begin to travel on foot, and they're moved north from Jerusalem, and they're kind of moving into uh, what is modern-day Turkey now, and they're there, and, and they're attempting to go northeast. Paul wanted to go into Asia. But the Holy Spirit stopped them and wouldn't let them go into Asia. They start praying. They don't don't know what to do next. As they're praying, one night, Paul has a vision. And in his vision, there's a a man standing there. A Macedonian man in his vision. Saying, hey... Over here, come help us, come help us. And so Paul wakes up from that vision and concludes that God is not calling them northeast. He's calling them northwest. He's calling them specifically into that region of Greece, Macedonia, where Philippi is. And so they listen to God, of course, and they set sail from Troas and make their way to Philippi. Now, um, just imagine for a minute. I mean, I can't pass by this too quickly without stopping here and going, you know, what an awesome thing. That vision. I mean, God allowed Paul to see a condition of a man, a man in need, representing a whole city of people, a whole region of people. And this man is saying, come help us. You see, Paul has got what they need, you see. Help us, we're drowning. Help us, we're sinking. Help us, we're dying. And Paul has got the answer. He's got the remedy. He's got the cure. And it's not a, it's not a vial of medicine. Rather, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we didn't see a vision a few years ago. But yet, there was a sense of calling... Okay, to come here to West Dallas, a sense that there are people 
here that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, we saw a West Alastonian standing and saying, come help me. Or a Milwaukeean saying, come help me. And nothing has changed, has it? That cry for help is, is still out there. You don't see it. You've got to have eyes of the Spirit to look into the spiritual realm and see it because people are crying out. They are out there. They are crying out. They need help. And we have the answer. We have the answer. We've got the only answer. Do you realize that? We have the only answer for mankind. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing. So Paul shows up in Philippi and he goes down by the river expecting to play, uh, find a place of prayer. And he encounters a woman named Lydia. She's a seller of purple, which means she sold costly fabrics. And she's there. She's also a worshiper of God, which means she's a Greek who has converted to Judaism at some point in her life. So Paul has something to work with in her case, right? She knows the Jewish scriptures. So she's kind of been set up, if you will, by God, right? And so Paul begins to talk to her, and the Bible says that the Lord opens her heart to receive Christ. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that excite you? I mean, that gets me excited. God opened her heart to receive Christ. And she became the first convert to Christianity there in Macedonia. So Paul continues to be there in the city, continues to pray, him and Silas. and, And they're going back and forth every day to this place of prayer. And, and then there's this, this girl, this young girl that happens to be following them every day and crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God. She does it every day, day after day. And Paul gets annoyed by it. <laughs> That's what the Scripture says. He became annoyed and he turned to her and he cast the demon out of her because she was not functioning in keeping with the Spirit of God but rather with a demonic spirit. Paul didn't want to be associated with what this girl was all about. What she was doing is she was, she was uh, uh, fortune-telling. She was working for her owners. She was a slave girl. She worked for her owners, and she was fortune-telling. And it says that she made them a lot of money doing that. She was good at it. But she did it in keeping with a demonic spirit. And when Paul cast the demonic spirit out of her, guess what? Business goes south for those owners, Right? They get all upset, and they start this riot. And it says that Paul, as a result, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods. They were beaten with rods, and they were thrown into jail. So there they are. They are in jail, right? Whoops, I think I stepped outside the the Facebook live streaming zone. (laughs) I'm like, dude, we got to get a wider angle because it's hard for me to... By the way, don't say hi to my mom. <laughs> she said she saw me last week. So, hi, mom. Uh, anyway, my mom's in South Alabama, so it's a big deal for my mom, okay? It's not funny. It's serious. 
So anyway, they're in jail, right? They're in jail, and they're there, and uh, it's midnight, and they're singing praises to God. Paul and Silas, beat up, bleeding, I'm sure, singing praises to God, amazing grace. Can you imagine what that was like? And then there's an earthquake, and the earthquake opens those jail doors, right? And this is an amazing part of this story that I do not get. It says then that the Philippian jailer, the guy that was over the jail, this Philippian guy, he he then woke up. What? There was an earthquake. I mean, he must be a heavy sleeper, right? But he's like, he then wakes up and he sees all these doors open. And then fear overtakes him because he thinks, oh no, all these prisoners have escaped. And so, you know, that was a big deal for this guard. Because they were his responsibility. And if they escaped, he could lose his life. So he was just going to go ahead and and take care of the matter and end his own life. He he knew it was over. So he, he went and got his sword and he was about to take his life. And Paul calls out to him, don't do it, we're still here. Everybody's here. And so... This jailer runs in by Paul and Silas and falls on his knees and says, tell me, please tell me what I need to do to be saved. And so they lead him to Christ. And then it says that even that very night, that jailer and his entire family are saved and they are baptized. That very night. Man, I want to tell you something. When God shows up to town, things happen, right? Isn't that amazing? There's no church there. God comes in like a bulldozer. There's going to be a church here. We're going to plant a church here. I'm going to make it happen. And and the gates of hell are not going to stop me from doing it. Nobody's going to stop me. The Roman Empire is not going to stop me. I'm going to plant a church here. (laughs) And so... This church at Philippi starts and it kicks off. No doubt, you know, I think Lydia's there and the jailer and his family's got to be in this church. And and maybe this girl, this this young girl, how could she not be in the church, right? I mean, God set her free and then others are added to the church over time. So fast forward 10 years. So that was about around 52 A.D., so fast forward to about 62 A.D., okay? Now, Paul is in prison again. He's in jail. But it's not like the previous jail, which was probably really dark and dank. He is, he is more under a kind of house arrest now. He is in Rome, and he's waiting to have his case heard by Caesar himself. So he's there, and he has some freedom. He's able to, to, to minister, and he's able to have some of, his, some of his co-workers there with him. So he has some degree of freedom, but he's still in chains, so to speak. And there he is when all of a sudden a guy named Epaphroditus comes stumbling in. And I say stumbling in because chapter 2 points out chapter 2 in Philippians, that this guy was gravely ill. 
Now, it doesn't say when, but when you think about the trip he had just made, so once again, here's Philippi. Paul's in Rome. So now you've got to cross the Adriatic Sea, and you've got to get to um, uh, the Italian peninsula. And, and Rome's over there. And we're talking in excess of 700 more miles to get to there. And Epaphroditus shows up because he has come from the church at Philippi to bring gifts to Paul. Money and materials. And he stumbles in, probably sick from the journey. Because this was no small thing to make a journey like he had just made. No small thing. Now I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes. Okay? It's ten years after he started this church in Philippi. And here he is. And in walks this guy who possibly he didn't know prior to this visit. In walks this guy bearing gifts from the church at Philippi. I can just imagine the joy that he had in that given moment. And it's at at this point, or somewhere shortly after that point, that he pulls out his quill and his parchment and starts to pen a letter to the church at Philippi. And it will be Epaphroditus, after he gets well, who takes this letter back to the church at Philippi. So, Epaphroditus makes it back, and he walks in, no doubt. Maybe he's the one who reads this letter to the entire church, and they're there, and he opens up the scroll, and after the initial two verses, the greeting, he says this, speaking Paul's words for him, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's he's filled with joy. And the reason he's filled with joy is because, because he sees and knows that this church is a partner with him in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have partnered with him. There's two sides to this partnering that I want you to see. The first is the side of giving. This this whole giving thing, like Epaphroditus had brought gifts to Paul. Um, You know, the, the crazy thing about the Philippian church is that they were they were dirt poor. Paul points this out in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. They were really poor. In fact, he calls their poverty extreme. They didn't have anything. But yet somehow they were were able to, to pull their resources so that they might use them to help the gospel be furthered through Paul. And so at the end in chapter 4 of Philippians, we read, starting with verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, 
No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, when I was there, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Listen, it's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory. You see, you, you, just, you just can't outdo God when it comes to giving, right? I mean, these people are flat broke. They're scraping pennies from the bottom of, of their pocketbooks. And they're joyful in doing it. They, they want to do it. Because they want the gospel to keep progressing. Because they know what the gospel has done in their lives. And they want others to be set free. So they, they keep giving and they keep giving. And Paul says, listen, I know you're broke. I know you don't have anything. I know it's an extreme sacrifice for you to give. But let me tell you something. My God will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory. Maybe that's a word for some of you today. You scrape in the bottom of the barrel because you want to see the gospel go forth. It takes everything you can do to give to this church so that the gospel can be proclaimed so that the lights can come on and doors can remain open and you give. Don't you fret one bit. Don't fret one bit. I don't care how empty the bank account looks. Our God shall supply all of your needs according to to His riches and glory. So there's that one side of the partnership. And then there's another side to the partnership. And I think actually the second side is what the book is all about. So let me see if I can describe it this way. On the one side, there is the proclamation of the gospel and the support of that proclamation. Okay? So, and they're giving toward that. On the other side, there is the authentication of the gospel. Okay? So I think there's a sense in which the Philippians are partnering with Paul as kind of being the proof of his pudding. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? So, so, so let me say it this way. Like in Corinthians, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, you know what, sometimes people ask, and I'm paraphrasing, Sometimes people ask us for letters of, of recommendation. You know, we're speakers. And people want our credentials. And you know what I tell them? I said, I don't need any papers. Just look at the Corinthians. They're my letters of recommendation. And he says to them, you are a living epistle. Isn't that awesome? You're a living epistle. So I think that's, the idea here, the second half of the partnership is, listen, Philippians, be living a living epistle. Be, be people who authenticate the message of the gospel. So as an example, just as a side point, you know, what good is it to preach a life-changing message if you never have any lives changed? What good is it to preach a powerful message if you don't have any power? 
So I, I think that's the other side of the equation in this partnership. Listen, listen, authenticate the message, and I think it's even reinforced by verse 27. So please look there with me. Verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now you see our phrase there, side by side, right? Okay. But look at the beginning of this verse again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So, again, authenticate the gospel. Authenticate the gospel. Let your life be worthy of the gospel. Now, there's something behind the verb in in the first of of this verse where it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The verb that Paul uses is a verb that relates to citizenship. So later on, a sermon is going to be preached uh, in chapter 3, where Paul talks about uh, living as citizens of heaven, he says to the Philippians. There, the noun is used, citizens, it's used, and then of heaven is included in the original Greek text. That very word, that noun word in 320 is also here in 127 as a verb. Now, the translators of the ESV have chosen to render that in terms of your manner of life. So, so nothing special, if you will, um, behind it. But the NLT, a version that I like to also read from, it's a, it's a translation, um, renders it this way, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. So they translate it akin to chapter 3, verse 20. Citizens of heaven. So in other words, the manner of life I'm talking about, guys, is in relation to being citizens. And of course, the Christian says, citizens of what? And we say, this earth is not our home, is it? Right? We are citizens of what? Heaven. We dance to the, to the beat of a different drum, do we not? My allegiance is to Christ. That's where my allegiance lies. Okay, so, so anyway, if you ask me, this changes the narrative about how to live. This, this causes you to think in a different light. So that is kind of visionary. It's visionary. So in other words, get that image in your head. You're a citizen of heaven. Now, now think about how you ought to live. So what's it going to be like in heaven? Right? What's it going to be like in heaven? Are we going to get along in heaven? Are we going to be of one mind and one spirit in heaven? Will we love each other in heaven? Now, how ought you to live here? Right? Let heaven inform you as to how you ought to live here. And I hope you caught that. The second half of that verse, so let me back up. When you read a statement like, only let your manner of life 
be worthy of the gospel. We, we Americans tend to think individualistically, right? Independently, okay? We think about personal holiness when we read that. And we should, but listen, if you stop there, you've not completed that whole thing, right? Because when you read the second half of that verse, he's not talking about solely about personal holiness. He's talking about corporate holiness. He's talking about the community. He's talking about the church. Do you catch that? When I, when I hear about you, Paul says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I, I find it's ironic that we are preaching a series called Side by Side, and we didn't, we didn't even anticipate this when we planned this series, but every Sunday we see people on TV if you watch the NFL, or still watch the NFL, that are locked arm in arm, standing side by side, right? Now, whatever you think about that really doesn't matter to me. I mean, you know, in the sense of right now, I, we're not going to debate what you think about that and the benefits of that demonstration or the, the timing of that demonstration in relation to the national anthem and all sorts of things that pertain to it. But, but, but yet you get the image, right? You see the image. That's a powerful image. When a group of men stand on the sideline and lock arms, that is a powerful image. And I think when I see them, as sincere as they may be, I think, oh, but you're just standing for a Band-Aid, right? In other words, we stand for racial inequality and we, we stand for social injustice and those are great causes. But at the same time, listen, those things have always been around and they will continue to be around. And there's only one answer for those things in our society. And that is that God changes our hearts. God changes us at the core of who we are so that I love you no matter who you are, no matter what color you are, no matter how much money you make, no matter where you come from, whether it's Wisconsin or Alabama or, or Texas. I don't know why I said Texas. You get what I'm saying? You know, in other words, the world has been talking about unity forever. Do do you see that? I mean, from the time I was a kid. And we just keep having wars and rumors, rumors of wars. When I was a kid, it was the Cold War. Right? Russia, the big, the big Russia. And you know what they taught us to do? To listen, uh, Russia has nuclear weapons, so we're going to do a little drill here. Okay? So all you kids come out of, or no, I don't think we had to come out of the classroom. No, that was tornado drill. All you kids, they want you to get under your desk. And so this is what happens. If you hear the sirens and we have nuclear fallout, you get under the desk. So that it would melt the desk as it got to me. <laughs> wars and rumors of war. They've always been around. And, and you know, now it's North Korea or, or whatever. Listen, we, we are the answer. So, here's two phrases I want, want you to get. First of all, I, I want you to see the church. 
you're in Philippi. I want you to see the church, and then I want you to hear the call that goes forth in verse 27. I want you to hear that call. Let your life, your manner of life, be like a citizen of heaven. Live a life worthy of the gospel because there is nothing else that matters more. Nothing greater that you can do with your life. This matters. There are people saying, come help us. So we don't have time to play church. What we need to do with our time is authenticate the gospel and be a real community that loves one another completely and thoroughly so that people from the outside look at us and say, wow, there is something salvific about what's going on there. I want to be a part of that. Jesus says they will know you by your love one for another, right? In essence, they will know me as you love one another. Side by side. Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, I want your love to abound. I'm, I'm praying that your love abound more and more. And the thought that came to me when I read that was, you know, do we even think that way, right? Or, or do we just, are we just content with getting by, you know, just existing with one another? And as long as we don't have blow-ups, we're okay. Is that what we're content with? That is so beneath the call, right? No. I want your love to abound more and more and more and more and more and more. Let it abound. So is your love abounding for your brothers and sisters? Is it abounding? Do you hear the call? Do you see what the church ought to be, what the church can be, and do you hear the call? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. You're a glorious God. You're an awesome God. I am always amazed at the wonders of your word, the great things that are, that are kept within your word. So, Father, your word has been preached today. And now it's up to you. Well, the preaching was up to you as well, but the ongoing effects of the word that has been preached is now up to you. You must take this word, Father, and you must solidify it within our souls. You must make us think more about this word than we think about a football game. You must make us think more about this word than we think about eating even. Father, make it real to us. Make it matter so that we can be who you've called us to be, so that we can be difference makers in this community. Oh, dear God, help us to hear the call. Take our dull ears and open them. In Christ's name, amen.